0: Most professional urban planning has favored, has centered, has been written for straight white males, but bringing in more people and more body types and more voices, income levels, that's the ideal because I really do want to start amplifying community voices from the grassroots.
1: You're listening to The Follow, a multicultural podcast from creative agency Sanders Wingo, where we help people get smarter about culture by talking to up-and-coming BIPOC creators, movement makers, and thought leaders who we follow. In this episode, we speak to Kristen Jeffers, founder and editor-in-chief of the Black Urbanist Multimedia Platform, as well as an urban planner, author, textile artist and designer, and activist. In our conversation, she talks about the importance of having diverse voices in urban planning and she discusses her own journey of creating the black, queer, urbanist, feminist movement. Hosting this conversation is Keith Saunders, strategic planner at Sanders Wingo. Now, here's Keith. Always like to start off
2: with, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from and what you do.
0: So I'm Kristen Jeffers. I'm originally from Greensboro, North Carolina. I've lived. In Kansas City, Baltimore, DC proper, right now I live just outside of DC in Oxon Hill, Maryland. That's on the Maryland side, obviously. <laughs> I go by Black queer feminist urbanist online. My long LinkedIn title is that I do. I'm a media maven. I'm a fiber artist. Brought that with me from North Carolina, and a marketing consultant is my official mix code on my taxes. So we'll go with that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you're definitely multi talented. So. As far as what you do, and you, there's lots of skills that you have and whatnot. Urban planner is one of those things that seems like it's most prominent in what you're doing. And so as an urbanist, at a very basic level for those who don't know, could you explain like what is an urbanist and what does an urbanist do?
0: An urbanist, there's so many different types of urbanists and the basic ones are you can be an urban enthusiast where you like promoting cities, thinking about how cities work and that kind of gets into the professional half of it where you could be a elected mayor or some sort of like council member where you're making policies about cities or you're a real estate developer where you're building you're getting permission from those city governances or you've purchased land and you build cities or you are in social services and you're thinking about how people can optimally use cities at whatever income level they're at or you're like, you're thinking about how you're going to raise your kids or age in place. Or so urbanism just is kind of the encompassing of how do you make community? For me, I think about how villages are made, like literally everything from a pandemic pod to a mutual aid group, to a congregation, to like a neighborhood that's been built. And then it's been through different cycles of say, redevelopment, gentrification, repopulation, depopulation. And so it has all these different characters. And yeah, it has your everything from your favorite bodega to your favorite park. And so all of that encompasses urbanism. And generally, people who are urbanists are urban planners, real estate developers, council members. And then there are people like me who are marketers and storytellers and concerned about their communities. And then they just pull things, pull their skill sets together and give their skill sets to this village creation.
2: So now, before we get deeper into your brand of urbanism, I'm curious to hear about when you first found out about urban planning, when did you find that was a thing?
0: Well, I think I knew because it was like, I grew up hearing it was, I would listen to NC and t University's radio station and Clinton Gravely, an architect, a black architect would advertise on there. So oh. I knew at least architects could make a career in this. My own father was a licensed electrician. He worked by day at the school system as a maintenance person. And then at night, he would go and he would wire people's residences, churches, et cetera. So I knew you could be an architect or you'd be like a building contractor or some kind of trade or skill like my dad. You could be an engineer in it. But as far as like being a geographer, I mean, I saw it in the labor books in high school. like, oh, wow, people do get get paid to make maps. That would be cool, but I'm sure I won't get paid enough. So Fast forward through the Great Recession, and I am coming into this PR world of that time where 100 applications to try to get one interview. I'm working at a call center. I'm just reading and doing some digging, and I figure out, oh, well, there are people who work in nonprofit settings and they make community things. There's something called a community developer. Um, There's something out here called smart growth, and there seems to be a lot of people tweeting about this. So I started using that terminology. And that's where I found the term urbanism as well, because people started to call their work urbanism. So it was really kind of when I was about 22, 23 years old, 2009, 2008 range. I worked in actually worked in a PR firm that was contracted by some developers to get the word out. So I saw that, okay, there are folks out here doing various versions of this work and making money. Now, of course, When we get to how I've created my own platform, it makes a difference in how that money is made. That money is not equally made. And so my niche became urbanism and smart growth and a little bit of like faith and education. But it was really that I noticed the disparity and a diversity deficit as I was sitting in my first semester of grad school. And that's why the branding of the Black Urbanist came about. Now, this was just Black mm-hmm. and urbanist. We hadn't added the other parts yet because I hadn't consciously gotten to the other parts. But that's mm-hmm. how we got there when it comes to thinking about urbanism in a marketing, PR, storytelling, media perspective.
2: So you noticed the disparity in the urban planner pr- profession. And so you wanted to brand that for yourself initially with yes. the Black urbanist. Yes. So take us from there to your brand of urbanism right now, which is called black queer feminist urbanism.
0: So of course I was very much pro that black folks experience the world in a different way. I had noticed a grocery train leaving our side of Greensboro and I was like, okay, all I can see like with my own eyes is that most of us are black. We're middle-class people, but we're still black. And it seems like they're trying to tell a story by moving to the other side of town. And so that was kind of the first introduction as a child. And then I got on Twitter under my given name and I still have my given name Twitter, which was so long ago. Wayne Sutton said, get on Twitter. This was even before black in America and all the startup energy. I went to grad school and realized, okay, our textbooks are only showing us in a certain light. So then I was like, mm-hmm. I'm going to go home and do what I always do. Buy a domain name as i had already bought my given name.com. So that was a, a no brainer. So I'm like, I'm going to Google Black Urbanists, see who is using it, see if it's available, see how I can leverage this. And that's why I say I'm one of the first people to use the term on the internet. Now, Melvin Mitchell, who's a legendary architect, fellow of um, the American Institute of Architects, as well as NOMA, he has used it in a, a published book. And of course, a full circle moment is like right at the beginning of this pandemic, I worked with him on his next book and helping him get his website together so that people could know. He was technically the first and there were other women and non-binary folks like they were out here using this in the black community but as far as like thinking about buying a domain name securing the social media i did all that in the 2010 fall of 2010 Mm -hmm. then i was given my first like formal byline later that winter it's no longer live but it was on grist so i got a grist byline and then that kind of brought me to prominence then the Congress for new urbanism reached out about me being on their next generation stage in the spring of 2011. And so that exposed me to that whole urban hardcore new urbanist crowd of folks, Andres Duaney and everybody that's kind of, and that the original folks that created that movement and that organization. And so I don't do as much with them, but I still do a lot with them. And that I'm still on their various websites and everything, but that was the core of my folks for a while. It's not that I wasn't like had that snarky and humor and didn't understand that humor of black Twitter. I mean, I I lived it in real life, Mm -hmm. but I was definitely more of giving like a PBS subject to like a short, pithy, meany world of things, you know? When it comes to adding queer and Mm feminists, I had to stop pretending that what it was, wasn't what it is and like, okay, yeah. So I'm out here not worried about when I have kids. I'm out here living with my partner and we're, you know, two adults with no kids dual income or dualish income since I've been running this business, you know, and Mm -hmm. the, the timelines are different. You know, people are saying, Oh, well, you're going to get ready to leave downtown DC. You're going to buy a house in like Suitland or, or even Tacoma park, maybe, you know, Tacoma parks, there's a lot of lesbians there. You're going to move there. And maybe, maybe not. And I also noticed, and there's this thing called the smartest boy urbanist. It's a meme.
2: What did you call it? Smartest boy?
0: Yes, smartest boy urbanist. And so it's, for the most part, it's young, straight, sometimes young, gay, white males, or at least male appearing people. They're on the internet. They think that because their neighborhood's a certain way and that they are able to ride their bike and they're able to walk somewhere and they're able to rent the apartment and they're able to get the jobs out of the gate. That rent at that level, then that's urbanism. Their urbanism is uh, the fault. Right. Mm-hmm. And of course, I count in a different body anyway, even if it was just me being Black urbanist. And I also started to see that within our own Black community. You know, initiatives like buy the block are very important. They're very powerful. They're needed. People do so that we can have some degree of people who want to stay on a block and want to stay and afford a block, even if they're income isn't matching up, like the asset that they've worked really, really hard to get, mm-hmm. that we can still have that opportunity to pass down that generational wealth. But there's still this overcorrection of, okay, well, I'm going to buy the house as a straight Black male. My partner, whatever gender or permutation they are, going, one of them is going to work from home. My kids are going to do this. and of course, everything going on with policing, incarceration, lack of income, lack of being paid fairly. There were just so many structural things as I went down the line, studied, lived, breathed, felt. And I was like, okay, there has to be at least a home for this somewhere on the internet. It has to bring in folks like Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, June Jordan, who actually had some architecture plans for our experimental city. And that got lost under Bucky Meister Fuller, like the New Yorker did an article on this a while back that she was working with him, but ultimately she ended up shelving her architectural plans and she became the poet that we knew her as until she passed away. We at least were able to see her become moderately successful, but she's still someone that we're introducing people to as a poet.
2: Hmm.
0: Yet she also was drawing architectural and urban plans on the side, thinking about how to plan a home for her and her child as a single mom most professional urban planning has favored, has centered, has been written for straight white males. As well meaning as some of my friends were in the industry writing about poor people, black people, even their own queerness and their gender identity, there were still missing gaps. We were assuming that people just didn't want the bus stops to work. We assume that buses run all day 24 seven and they do not same with like our uh, trains. We assume that people, everybody can work next to where they live. Definitely not true. Mm -hmm. And of course, the pandemic really amplified some of those issues where specifically here, living in Prince George's County, Maryland, we're kind of the service industry, like a lot of service industry folks live here. For those of you who know the government like levels, the lower pay grades of the government, we're living here and we're commuting into downtown DC, we're commuting into Northern Virginia. Those are at least 30, 45 minute commutes. It's been documented mm-hmm. lately that we have one of the longest commutes in the country and that's centered in the black neighborhoods and the black suburbs of the DC Metro area. Throwing stats out like that, just what are we telling people? What are we selling people on? What story are we telling when we're saying, hey, are you, you're gonna move to this area you're going to get this house, you're gonna have this grocery store. Oh, and now somebody is following you because they don't think that you as a black family should be in here. So yeah, absolutely bringing that to the forefront and helping people see that we're not one size fits all and we do have these concerns. And me personally, this is, these the there are some places I need in my life to live and function and some places are missing and they're definitely not transit accessible. Bikeable, and that's a really big thing. With like, especially about your enthusiasts and urban planning urbanists that really want their. It's like they want that climate change mitigation to happen immediately, and they're not thinking about the systemic things that happen. So I'm trying to tell the story along with a lot of other people to make sure it happens.
2: Does this look like projects with the government, projects with developers to help influence kind of or make them aware of what they have haven't considered? Is that what it kind of looks yeah. like? Yeah,
0: I um, tend to come in on project teams as their public engagement consultant or public affairs okay. consultant. So that's usually my job title when I either go in house. Let's like say I, you know, a lot of local governments do have public affairs departments. They tend to be communicators, marketers. You, if you want to, if you're interested in government and you have really strong skills in PR and marketing, you tend to get routed that way. Some developers will pull you in so that you can make the pretty like renderings along with the architect that they've drafted. You can come up with the name of the neighborhood. So many names and neighborhoods are actually from marketers and PR people that have done the polling and seeing what these things feel like. And of course, that's probably why you have so many like nature names or You have so many renamings because people are trying to tell a story of a place, whether that's their story to tell or not. So I've been on project teams that have been consulting with governments that want to redevelop areas or build areas for the first time. I've also gone to city council meetings to say, hey, don't build this here or hey, remember. I've also been um, worked with historic preservationists or worked closely with them or at least provided them tools to say, hey, this is how we make sure that a cultural Pieces there. This summer, I'm actually going to be doing a a panel on cultural displacement and making sure people understand what that means and helping developers, elected officials, and community members that are already organizing their neighborhoods. Like they've been organizing the block parties and all the different levels of local neighborhood governance together and helping folks see how that all comes together.
2: I read a quote that said, This exercise of my self-care has become a practice of community care.
0: Basically, I look at things like, well, where can I get my hair done? Do Mm -hmm. I have to drive 30 minutes? Can I get on the train? Can I get on a bus? What does that cost? You know, folks at home can't see this. but My hair is purple and it is not naturally purple. So where do I go to get that? And where does my hair stand on my head? And I'm very much, I'm proudly natural, have been since 2009. There's distinctions, there's levels to this. People are now just learning about the black hair care industry. Are relearning about it? There are layers to that and there is a spatial element to it and you can't always get what you want done where you live. Yet the urbanist mm-hmm. thing is neighborhoods. There's a thing called the 15 minute city for a lot of black folks and specifically black feminine presenting people, 15 minute city goes out the window when it comes to getting your hair done. Mm -hmm. Going to somebody you trust, somebody that's been working with you, somebody that works with your schedule, that goes out of the window because sometimes you do have to get in the car. Likewise, depending on your particular African diasporic cuisine, if you're not going to eat anybody's potato salad or jerk chicken or jollof or whatever it is that's specific to your region of the world that you came from, you might not be able to find that, or maybe the person on the block that tries to cook it made you sick. So that fifteen minute city's out the window that way. You can't measure it there, and right. so it's really pinpointing for me finding the things that make me me, allowing me to affirm myself. You know, obviously self care, like Audrey Lord said, it's a political act because of saying, hey, I get to exist in the world, and I get to create things, and I get to create something for people and I get to trade with the people who have resources that I want to trade with. But oftentimes we are in a big box and type world, you know, yeah, we have a type of round for target today, but that five years ago, I never would have imagined somebody I know from a part of my home region. And she probably wouldn't have imagined it either. Like it's for us, it was like, these are the things that we need for mm-hmm. us. It's like, these are the people who we are. And, I mean, you know, we grew up being told not to use, not to flatten our voices, not just Mm -hmm. don't use like A-A-V-E slang, but also don't be Southern, you know, Mm -hmm. try not to sound like that, you know, but those are deciding, okay, I'm going to maintain my regional diction. I'm not going to code switch anymore. I'm going to help you understand what's happening here. I do want fried fish on Friday and I do want it a certain way. So where do I go to get that, especially when the Captain White's barrage is floated away. Um, Or, you know, (laughs) anything like that, where it's like people come to DC and they're like, well, I don't hear go-go. I'm like, well, this is how it kind of works. And so that's kind of what the the moment right now has been for me. Mm -hmm. Mapping so that people would say when they Google or when they go to like a, like they Google things to do in DC, there's a site feed them Malik She no longer lives in the D.C. area, but she went and ate at all the Black-owned businesses in the D.C. area. She's still pinpointing different food places, Black-owned, BIPOC-owned, that are bringing up the culture at all different places around the world. And so Mm -hmm. it's that. It's the being, being able to sustain yourself in the in the cultural ways that you brought to the world in a world that still is kind of combative against you in a world that knows how to appropriate you but not pay you fairly or acknowledge your cultural contributions
2: so as far as urban planning practitioners you encourage them in these best practices what are the would you say are the top two or three things that they get wrong about this land use and planning
0: being top-down, there's still so many people that, and we, and I've done it too, I've literally got out a sheet of blank paper and tried to draw Richard Scarry's Busy Town, or at least my version of it, with a lot of the browner animals on there, just to, <laughs> and so we think, okay, it's this, like, even in my, me creating my world, I realized that my salon might be next to another salon that might do different things, or maybe everybody could figure it out together, Just like you go to the grocery store now and you have organic stuff next to junk food, next to fresh fruits, next to the coffee bar. And sometimes it's a local coffee bar. Sometimes it's a Starbucks franchise. There's like all this variety is there. So I think we have to remember that you can have your fantasy world as long as it doesn't impede or ruin the fantasy of others to be a human being. Like if you want like, something at the grocery store, we could all have that thing at the grocery store, but you can't have this fantasy of, oh, I only want nuclear white families on my block. I only want quiet or, and the, sometimes that's, that's something to think about because uh, I don't want to uh, erase my neuro atypical folks who do need that balance. We all can use that balance, but figuring out that balance better versus saying, oh, well, everybody works a certain way Also, not assuming that just because you didn't go to planning school or journalism school, which technically I did not. I did a comms degree and I did a community development public affairs master. So in the earliest years and even in our professional fields, you had to have the exact um, degree and discipline name match to Mm. get some of your certifications. Now, There's been a movement internally in our profession, at least the urban planning profession to say, hey, if you're doing urban planning type things, like if you planned a block party, if you have created a neighborhood market, if you have um, successfully lobbied your city to implement bike lanes and you don't have a planning degree, then document that, get somebody to vouch for you, take this little exam that we have. And you probably could become a, li- a certified planner. It's not a licensed planner. It's actually a certified planner. So thinking about, okay, how do we bridge that gap between local knowledge, lay knowledge, like people on the streets that have like just things that they're inherently good at, and making sure people have good skills with it, that they're training themselves, that their lifelong learning is encouraged not to get to a certain level or be a gatekeeper, but lifelong learning and collective community learning so we, we can build our own thing, grow our own things, be our pe- own people, instead of being afraid of, oh, well, I spent all this money at planning school. How do I make sense or peace with that?
2: You're talking a lot about the physical environment, how it interacts with people. You've also created an online space, the Black Queer Feminist urbanist lounge, bringing together people in the digital environment for people to feel safe. So could you tell us a little bit about how the spark to create that digital space came from?
0: So that was kind of my response to 2020, the middle of 2020. I noticed Mm -hmm. that so many folks were all of a sudden getting asked questions about being how to be diversity leaders, about Black Lives Matter, about, you know, it's also still Pride Month, and they're getting questions about that as well. So I wanted to create somewhere where practitioners, Black folks, people of color, indigenous folks, uh, people across the LGBTQ spectrum would have somewhere to go where they could just take off the armor, take off the education, and we could just kind of learn together. Now, this is an evolving space. It's been a little inactive. There have been other people that have started slightly more uh, successful spaces and movements. A lot of us just decided to say, hey, we need to do something. So we mm-hmm. have now designers' Zionist Protest, we have the Urbanist Assembly. There was also a, a movement called the Untoken and we did a few years back. It's not It's not mm-hmm. like it's not there, but these were movements we had done within the urban planning, architecture, real estate industry to get folks thinking about us. So this mm-hmm. was me during the pandemic when the George Floyd news hit, giving some folks some space. It also has a companion patron where now I'm helping people like I have like a little worksheet checklist, you know, do you need affirmation and who you are? Here's this checklist, reach out to me if you want more answers. Then I have for folks who would consider themselves allies, co-conspirators, people who need to learn their companies that need some DEI and i training. I have a version for that as well that tends to live on Patreon or by request. But Mm -hmm. this online space is there for anybody to find. The worksheet's there for anybody to find so that folks can make sense of where they are, whether it's job-wise, identity-wise, what their physical environment is like, just so that they could give themselves that self-care so that they could be there for people when people ask them the questions, or they can just not feel alone, or they can start sleeping through the night, or they can start having healthier habits around boundaries and being a person doing this work when. There's so many structural things about this work that aren't going to change. I mean, yeah, we haven't had a lot of our trains in the DC Metro for several months now. Somebody working there that's a junior staffer, they probably don't have all the tools. They're just there as a junior staffer working there. Mm-hmm. What can they do to help themselves, center themselves, and think about what their, their personal future is going to look like in the midst of something that's not as functional as it should be?
2: Obviously, identity is essential part of what you're bringing to the world right now. But how do you think your work would be different if you didn't allow your identity to show up and guide you?
0: I would probably right after when I noticed that the recession was happening, even though real estate was crashing, I would have like called some of those people that we worked with. I would have gotten a real estate license. I would have followed the money. And I would have been like, oh, well, I'll go just start like a, some kind of, I don't know, just something that wasn't necessarily branded as Black mainstream i wouldn't have multiple shades because there, at that time the market demand wasn't there yet but i would be Mm -hmm. just be following the money blindly i would be selling million dollar houses to billionaires and not thinking about okay well how much was this money was this house worth like i wouldn't worry about the gentrification on the house i would be like oh great it's gentrified i'm gonna make Mm -hmm. even more money and then i would just put it somewhere i wouldn't think about okay maybe i do become a real estate agent Maybe I do make good money off of the fact that the market is there, but then I put money into a ballot initiative to think about having things like inclusionary zoning or units set aside or funding public housing, allowing folks to live through their lifetime in those facilities and making it humane. So it would look very different. I personally, my personal image would look different.
2: Well, we're thankful i for sure am thankful that you you do bring your whole self to the work if you didn't bring your identity or you didn't look at those other things then it would as you said just about money and stuff like that and certain things would go unaddressed and things could get a lot worse if if you didn't have somebody fighting those fights i appreciate that you're doing what you're doing
0: thank you (laughs) enjoying this episode don't forget to subscribe rate and review on your favorite podcast platform this helps boost the show's visibility and helps others find and enjoy the podcast too. Thanks for listening. Now back to the interview.
2: We're gonna switch gears and talk about social platforms. You're, you're on many different social platforms. As a marketer, you, you know, and you work with a lot of these different things. So what's your, what would you say is your favorite platform to spread your work?
0: Right now, I'm actually liking LinkedIn. It has gone through okay. so many changes. And honestly, right now, the changes are favorable. When I go on social media right now, I'm going there for two things. I know it's a business. I know it's a transaction. So I'm going to go where that's most, like that balance that I just talked about, the balance between being my full self and then getting in front of people who are ready to invest Mm -hmm. in me as my full self. So Twitter was so great in the early stages. Same with Facebook, when you can just tweet something or Facebook something and boom, it's all over yeah, there's still virality in that, but it's not in the same way. And with so many Twitter followers now, I don't really, I don't see my partner. I don't see my cousins on there. I, mm. they will tell me, Hey, I tweeted something and I have to go back and physically go to their pages. And like, it. it's not coming up on my newsfeed anymore. It's people I've never seen in my life. It's all the retweets. And so It's And of course, now we're debating over what is Twitter going to change if it changes ownership. And so Mm -hmm. the platforms I like the most are the ones where I can directly still talk to people. Like I can put something up directly and there's enough time. And the algorithm is in my favor for that message to get to people that I like that can actually be beneficial are people who need to see my presence in the world. I'm getting into YouTube now because yeah, it allows me to have more time to talk about things. And then I actually take the approach of all these different newsletter platforms. Mm -hmm. I put my newsletter on my personal site. I've had a MailChimp list since like 2014, 2015. And I also are on Substack for its social networking feature. I'm on Medium for its social networking feature. I'm on Link, Mm -hmm. I use I repost it on LinkedIn. I also go live on LinkedIn and YouTube and Twitter mm-hmm. on video. So the fact that a lot of these social networks have overlapping features, mm-hmm. I now focus on what I wanna do. I wanna write a letter every week to people that like reading letters. Mm-hmm. I wanna do like a little mini news and analysis show. So I use StreamYard, that's my backend to do that. Mm-hmm. And then I want to still kind of connect with the polls. So I still check hashtags on Twitter. I still check the Instagram. I have my with my fiber artistry, my crafts, well, right now still technically a hobby, but I'm now that one I'm optimizing. That one I'm paying attention to how retail should work. I have an Instagram store set up there. I have a, a professional services arm and I have like a retail arm and the two methods of promoting those. And of course, all this movement work and activism, all those things have different ways of promoting. The different platforms do different things. Yes, I have been on Clubhouse. Yes, I've done Twitter spaces. Yes, I have a TikTok. I am on something good because the one that just prompts you once a day and then you record your audio and then you move on. So I'm on one of those types of social networks as well. I've been kind of immersed in these social networks now for a better part of 20 years, just saying Mm -hmm. a lot because I'm not that much past 20. So it's like, wow, it has. Mm -hmm. I remember a time before, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't that much time before that I do remember. To me, it's the the purpose more than the platform. And mm-hmm. yeah, it can get discouraging because yeah, the platform I have the most followers on doesn't work the same way for me as it used to. But in these last few months, especially during this pandemic period, I've really started to focus on what I ultimately want to do, my key messaging, getting back to the professional marketing training that we had, the key messaging, the key objectives, the tactics, the strategies, And optimizing for the social networks that I am on with the content that I post. What really has made me feel like there's an impact is when somebody directly says something. When I look at their bio and they're also doing the work or they're also, Mm -hmm. we're also at the same intersections. We're also like people are seeing someone that looks like them, reflects them, sounds like them, wants them to do well. sharing their knowledge and sharing their energy. Like I I just put out this, my weekly newsletter and I've actually had some more likes and comments from like quality folks or not. Not to say nobody, everybody is not quality, but you know, in the industry, we do have our preferred people. We do have our preferred target audiences and the target Mm -hmm. audiences are really starting to hit well, naturally, not out of me stretching myself into like silly putty all over the place, (laughs) sticking all over the walls. I'm actually reaching people I want to reach, and I'm actually reeling in clientele and people ready to do the deep work that it takes to do this work well.
2: Okay, now let's talk about trends in urban planning development. Are there any trends that you're particularly liking in this urban planning space, or are there any policy initiatives at the local, national, or state level that you're excited about now?
0: I'm so glad that so many people are thinking about dockless bike share, that if you're going to have a bike sharing system, you do need to have the infrastructure in place. And yes, it needs to be available. We need to treat it more like transit and not like a novelty item. So I'm happy that transit systems and local governments are looking at their tax revenue and realizing that, yes, people that generate large sums of money for your city do need to be taxed. Maybe they don't need the tax breaks or maybe those tax breaks need to graduate out so that we can have parks that work transit that works. Every school can have access to tools that they need. I mean, we just live through, and we're still living through a major global pandemic, being able to go to your community health center and getting the supplies you need, getting your tests, getting your masks, getting whatever you need, and knowing that you can Mm -hmm. go there and you're going to come back out of the facility. You're not going to go in there and that's it, or somebody you love is not going to go in there and never come back out. So Mm -hmm. the fact that the pandemic for many people has brought up the need for increased public health attention that has brought up, well, why are we, what's this balance of work? What are we working for? Why is our rent this high? Why are we, you know, chasing houses like this? Why can't we get to the grocery store? Why are we running out in this neighborhood and not another? So Mm -hmm. coupling all of that together, I want us to continue to be focusing on how we can make cities work for everyone. I want us to be mindful that Americans with the Disabilities Act is just over 30 years old and in many ways there's still disparities in how that's being applied. That planning for folks that have different abilities are disabled, planning for folks of different ethnicities, planning for children even, smaller people by nature that can't reach things Uh, or for folks to age in place like that Mm -hmm. elders don't have to if they want to go to a home or if they want to live more like the golden girls that the options are there like you can Mm -hmm. you have more options to live so yeah definitely like dockless bike share inclusionary zoning grants Mm -hmm. like universal income if we are capable of generating this much money yeah absolutely we should all share in it because we're all on the earth this is the bounty of the earth so spreading out not not necessarily taking everybody out of business, but definitely making sure people really think about how their business is impacting others and how the labor of their hands, mm-hmm. or is it even the labor of their hands, or is it somebody else they got that they are not really compensating fairly enough? And you know, mm-hmm. we have all these shortages and such, can we make our own things? So I'm glad to see, as I have said before, that mutual aid and people are thinking about how to procure things and make things at their own communities that we're supporting businesses that are, are started in homes and businesses on what we've branded ethnic storefronts or such, but just supporting yeah. community businesses. And, you know, yeah, you might have your chains here and there, but it's great to see things like 15% pledge. I would love to see that higher yields for more <laughs> and more types of people making things, creating things that have a chance to get fair trade for their labors. Or yeah. just be, you know, and you're, you're, just, you're, you're an entertainer, you're providing something in the world, you just are, and, and people can just make sure you can just be and be what kind of naturally comes from you.
2: Now, Dockless Bike Share, I don't think I've ever seen that before. Is that still paid with the app or is that free? Tell me a little bit more about that. I've never heard of So Doc,
0: but... basically, the instead of docking the bike at the kiosk, mm-hmm. your bike is actually has a lock on it and you can leave it. And because oh. there's a geotag on it, the bike sharing company or whatever entity runs bike share, wherever you live, they can still see it. It's kind of like you have everybody's got you know, location services on their phone. The bike mm-hmm. has a location on it. The bike has a tag on it. And so centrally located, they can go out and they can bring the vans out and they can move bikes from one area to another. Um, something else when I worked full time with a bike sharing company we did is like we would have special events. And we would have what we call virtual check-in of the docks. We would create mm-hmm. a virtual dock. So you could get a bike from any dock in town, bring it to our special pin, and we would mm-hmm. just sign the bikes back in and we would take them right back to our service center. Now, that particular, when I lived and worked in Kansas City doing that, we had a lot in-house. So it all kind of depends on different entities of like thing transit urban planning bikes working together, you can't necessarily have bikes being serviced at one place and being like sold at another or working with existing bike shops like neighborhood bike shops to mm-hmm. you know have like a network of bike repair, helping people get on their own personal bikes, especially like electric assistance bikes so that mm-hmm. for folks who you know the terrain might be a barrier or they might need to like ride a recumbent bike, just being able to get a bike wherever they need it, leave it wherever they need it. Somebody comes and picks it up before it becomes litter. And you can always find one within say a few minutes walk or have it brought to you. Like if, mm-hmm. if you need that mobility of having the bike brought to you, it can be brought to you as well.
2: Is it advantage that because it has a lock on it, as opposed to going in a dock, it can go many more places. It's a little more flexible.
0: Not just the lock for folks who are concerned about the bike growing legs or being rolled away and it's not them that rolled it away. Also there's weight considerations. There's just being able to bring, if say you have a special event in one part of the city and you Hmm. want people to maybe consider biking home, you can bring all the bikes to the special event. Kind of like what we see during special events at the baseball stadiums. They tend to run more trains by those stops. The trains like they they just do their best to get folks in and out. They may not stop at every stop, or like if mm-hmm. we have like late games, they'll keep the system. Like companies have paid at least here in D.C. for the system to stay open longer, and so mm-hmm. everybody can board at the baseball stadium stop, and then they can go wherever they need to go because they just let the trains run. That you don't get on the train from mm-hmm. the baseball stadium because it's just a special run, but it's a special run to allow you to get home. So. Yeah. Same concept with the bikes. Bringing bikes out there, then people ride them home. Then you have a night crew that is paid to go around and make sure there's bikes everywhere they need them for rush hour. You're really watching where people are taking bikes. You're seeing where your bikes are, and you're providing that service. Like a few summers ago, we had that whole VC-funded Dockless bike share thing. Mm-hmm. It kind of fizzled out before it really got a chance to really pick up and really grow legs. And I'm hoping to see that return again or at Mm -hmm. least the existing systems can look at their contracts, look at what they're doing and really incorporate how people want to ride or where people want to ride and that they don't just want scooters. They also want all kinds of different mobility options.
2: The Black Queer Urbanist Feminist Movement, which you have talked about. You also mentioned you're building a Black Queer Feminist Urbanist Index. What does the index mean and what do you hope to accomplish with that?
0: So similar to like what you see on livability.com where they've ranked, they've codified, they take different measures of what makes a city livable. As I mentioned before, where do I get my hair done? So the goal is to map that and then have this searchable database where people can, you know, if you move to a new city and you want to find the things that you do, you can search them and they're clearly available. And it's kind of like the map looks like what your map would look like. It's not, oh, well oh, I happen to walk by here. I hope that they can help me out. It's yes, these people have said, yes, we do serve you. Yes, our business is geared toward you. We are happy to have you as customers. We are here on this map. And eventually there will be, it'll be ad supported for those kinds of businesses to make sure that they have opportunities to talk to people that they want to talk to. And local governments, market researchers can download that information and they can use it in planning, where they put businesses or if they're trying to diversify, like just like we're tracking all these efforts for diversity in our various industries. The goal Mm -hmm. is to top load a lot of things that come up when I'm thinking about my life as a black person, as a queer person, as a feminist. So there's, you know, certain folks I won't deal with or, you know, as someone who wants to try to practice fair trade, who's very conscious of where labor violations are still happening in the world. Someone who would not going to be like these cake bakers that don't want to bake my wedding cake, correcting for those kinds of things. And so that's where this index comes from. And I mm-hmm. want to encourage folks who are of different ethnicities, like different identities in the LGBTQIA plus umbrella, like think about, write down the places you go to every day, write down the places you want to see, and don't be afraid to say, hey, this is my list of places that I go based on the body that I'm in, I'm going to like look in the mirror and account for that. And I'm going to share with the world. These are the things that I like, you know, hopefully right. we can have a cultural exchange, not an appropriation, mm-hmm. but let's try to have this cultural exchange and let's tell the world, okay, this is what I need. And this is what I want. And this is what I want to serve deserve and have.
2: Are you developing this index right now, or is it already out?
0: It's in development. There's been some like starts and stops. So over the next couple of years, there'll be some events. I'll be releasing maps. Right now, you can go to a post on my site, theblackurbanist.com called The Wise of Black Career Feminist Urbanism. It's in the menu bar, and it really goes into kind of the basics of eight initial areas that I'm tracking that tend to track for things that I look for in a metro area, in a region, Mm-hmm. And over time, I want to expand out and then grow out those things. It is based, though, on one that City Lab did on Black women's livability. And that okay. actually ranked access to healthcare, access to education, and access to jobs. What mm-hmm. myself and others have done, like Sherelle Dorsey of the plug, like that, she, her, mm-hmm. her orga- media organization is tracking entrepreneurship dollars and access to entrepreneurship, BC, as well as more traditional funding capital funding for black women and gender marginalized black folks and there's other people that in different sectors that weren't necessarily represented in that index that are in city Lab that are adding in and so this is me adding in mm-hmm. okay do we have black where are the black bookstores at you know where are the hair places where are na- nature areas that realize everybody goes into nature If I want a worship experience, where can I go that believes that I'm not a heathen? So that's what I'm working on mapping. That's what I'm, um, and I'm also raising money for it as well, or at least trying to build more capital up myself Mm -hmm. so that I can actually provide this in a way that's mobile friendly, that's desktop friendly, that we can print. Because I Mm -hmm. still believe in my people in my grandparents' generation that the computer is still kind of a barrier for them. I still want that to be there for them. I want it to be accessible. I want people to be able to listen to it or just look at it captioned. I'm, I'm very much about that. So to do all that I want it to do, it's still a process of fundraising. And so, yeah, anybody who listens to this and is interested in being a partner in something like this, definitely reach out to me and let me know.
2: <laughs> all right. So our final few questions, since we're an ad agency, you know, we talk about partnerships and organizations and brands and stuff like that. I'm curious about, are there any organizations and brands that you would love to partner with to kind of support those causes that you care about?
0: You know, I'm allowing myself to think about how I can leverage corporate sponsorships in an ethical way. How do I say this in a way where it's like, yeah, absolutely, give me free things, advertise on my platforms, but then roll back and say, okay, well, what kind of company are you? Are you a company that believes in an equitable distribution of labor and compensation? Do your products work? Do you believe in quality? Do you believe in allowing, building your products so that it can be built in various different places that it's not just overwhelmingly exported or overwhelmingly imported? Do you believe that I'm a human being or am I just like a, a checkbox? Do you show up for me beyond June on both levels? is this going to be a long term thing do you already mentor do you already help people find access are you are you making a difference in the world now of course the short answers are you know i look at people like um, that i actually use places i actually go you know the short answers would be the targets and the apples and things of the world but i'm not going to be like your blind endorser without bringing up hey your this product is great for me I'm great as your spokesperson, but what are you doing for other folks that work for you? Or are you profit sharing? And of course, now this, this goes beyond like any company that is like smaller businesses, fellow black and queer owned businesses, people like a lot of the folks that are in um, Arlen Hamilton's backstage capital portfolio are good fits, mm. anybody that I use. So it's like all these different mm. layers of, things that it comes to corporate partnerships but i don't want to block any blessings i don't want to block any abundance but if you're if you're okay with it being me then by all means let it be me
2: (laughs) right yeah yeah you're careful and i'm a huge fan of of backstage capital love what they've been doing for a long time if you could say one thing to brands about communicating supporting and working with people who with a similar identity as you what would it be
0: I mean, maybe folks could like one ad that I like right now, and this is, and I'm totally biased because it's two of my high school classmates in this latest Gatorade ad. Yes. I went to school with Cody Rigsby and Justin and Stanley. And as such, it was, I squealed when I saw the ad because I have said it before. And I was like, I hope that these fitness companies, I'm watching the two of them grow concurrently, grow with their networks, get the re- relationships that they're getting from their own like brands, which was rooted in us being who ourselves, like we we do kind of come out the gate this folksy and sharing and all those things, but to see them both in their element, being themselves on that ad, that's the kind of thing. If you're a company that wants a person to change their appearance, to change their message, to tone down their more activists, social justice, maybe even anti-capitalist statements, then that's probably not the person to work with. You want to take your product and align it with people that are going to make both your product and themselves look amazing. And therefore, because it's a natural synergy, it adds value, then roll with the value that you have. And if you want to kind of like make your value bigger, then look at other markets. Like take that profit that you have and then invest it in something else Don't try to gain your profit to try to make something that isn't real, real from a person, especially if they are committed to system reform, they're committed to new systems of governance and commerce and making things and lifting up voices and bringing languages back to the forefront, bringing cultural practices back to the forefront, and then just going beyond like going being afrofuturist you know and recentering indigenous practices all those things bringing those back and then going forward in a sustainable and a more earth friendly way
2: so uh, what i'm hearing as far as advice to brands don't try to change people don't try to silence people collaborate and align natural synergy
0: natural mm-hmm. synergy and just things that just make sense and you know don't mm-hmm. don't resist when consumers and regulations are asking you to change, be creative, like learn from your artists that you're watching, learn from some of our greater marketing campaigns. You can create lean on folks like us who are paid to create for you so that you can get the right people. There's something for everybody out here. Don't Mm -hmm. fall into the scarcity mindset that your brand can only be one thing. Your product can be only one thing. Or if you are gearing your product to something that you can't find your people, you will find your people.
2: Two final questions. And they're around like the name of our actual podcast to follow. So who are you following right now?
0: Of course I am following. This is definitely a shameless plug because I'm helping my partner build up this organization called EndoQueer. It's for folks who are in the LGBTQ community going through gynecological illnesses like endometriosis, fibroids, PCOS, so that we can have somewhere to go. HIV is still very much in the world. And so much of when people think about LGBTQ health is around, oh, just HIV prevention and tracking. But there's we still have all kinds of other diseases. We have all, all kinds of other healthcare needs. There's so many folks under this banner called the Untokening that we did. I do want to give a shout out to my colleague. Desiree D. Powell, who's doing a lot of work with bringing markets back. Likewise, Brittany Drakeford's doing the same thing here in the DMV area. D. is doing more of that work in the Dallas-Fort uh, Worth region in Texas, helping Black businesses, Latin A. and other people of color businesses leverage parks, leverage parking lots, leverage cultural spaces to do what they want to do with it. My favorite national newspaper right now is the LA Times. I just feel like it's a little bit more human centric. I like reading the West Coast perspective that still covers the nation. I do read The Guardian. I do try to read Republic Journal, which is out of Nigeria, just so I can get a sense of people that are part of the African diaspora that never actually moved from Africa. There is, people are writing. We're, we're having these conversations. When I'm actually paying attention to my Spanish, I read El Nuevo Dia out of Puerto Rico to get that perspective. Right now, I'm reading Shine Bright, which is Danielle Smith's kind of surprisingly more personal memoir of women in pop than I expected. I'm also listening to Black Girls' songbook. And just, it's, um, I even brought it into a book club I'm doing that was, we had our last book we read was The Body's Not an Apology, which, once again, Sonia Renee Taylor, Adrienne Marie Brown. And Tasha Reagan leading that legacy on of folks like Audre Lord and around their Black queer feminists urbanists that I look to towards. Also, I did want to shout out Imani Baldwin at Crutches and Spikes, as well as Cheris. Um, they all these different people that are doing disability advocacy on Twitter. They're they're telling us how it is. It's not always nice to hear that we're not ready to go back to what we were doing, but they're they're leading this equity conversation around disability in a way that really resonates. And I think we need do need to be listening. And then Amani is also trained in communication. She knows all of our tools and language. So for somebody mm-hmm. that's been formally trained, I've, I've mentioned a mixture of folks and there's so many other names I could mention, but those are some of the top of the line folks right now.
2: Okay. And so the final thing is, where can we all follow you on social media? now I know you're all over social media at a lot of different places, but where would you like us to follow you?
0: I'm at my given name, Kristen e. Jeffers on LinkedIn. And there you can find my weekly newsletter and weekly live stream. The Black Urbanist YouTube channel is also where that live stream lives. You can also subscribe to the Black Urbanist Weekly on Substack. Those are the best places to find me.
2: Kristen E. Jeffers, thank you so much for being on the show. And we very much, it was a wide ranging conversation and we appreciate you coming on and being generous with your time and chatting with us. We appreciate it.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you for a- asking all these questions. It's always good to get a good mix of questions and hopefully you all got something from it and we'll we'll have further conversations.
1: Thank you, Kristen, for being here and taking the time to share a little bit of your world with us. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to The Follow, a multicultural podcast from creative agency Sanders Wingo. For show notes, past episodes, or to get notified when a new episode comes out, visit thefollowpodcast.com. And if you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. It boosts the show's visibility so other people can find and enjoy it as well. Until next time, Take care.